0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Any metric can be used to divide into rank. Uh, it depends upon what is considered to be the value that is ascribed to the dominant group. The dominant group determines what is the dividing line for themselves and those who are deemed beneath them.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm not usually intimidated to do these interviews, but, but this is one I've I was intimidated to do. I am just a huge fan of Isabel Wilkerson. Her previous book, The Warmth of Other Suns, is just one of the best I've ever read. It's also one of the most recommended books on this podcast. And she just brought out a new book that she's been working on for years called Cast The Origins of Our Discontents. And both of these books are these sweeping books about race in America and cast in particular. It's not just about race in America, it's about caste in America and understanding America really through foreign eyes. What does America look like if you let our myths fall away from us? What does it look like if you were looking at us from India, where they have an understood caste system? Do we actually look different than that? Or is that just what we are or were or have been or will be? This is a difficult book. It is hard to look at your own country through eyes that refuse to be accustomed to the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. And that is also the book's tremendous value. And then the other thing that's hard about this interview is Wilkerson's just genius as a writer, and God, is she a good writer, in Warmth of Other Suns and here, is to take something really big, like the Great Migration uh, in America in her previous book, but here, caste and race, and some even class, And to not just offer you that big picture theory, but to humanize it, to give you the details, to make you get a sense of what it felt like. I mean, these books are, they're novelistic in a way. It's really hard. I cannot tell you how hard that is to do. It's something my book does not do at all. And I didn't want to lose that in this show. I mean, we can talk about this question of caste versus structural racism and class and how they're different, and we do, but how do you not lose what makes her work so remarkable? Um, And so (laughs) I was... This was a hard one to prepare for, but it was an amazing, amazing conversation. And it's wrenching. And I just want you to be prepared for that. There are things in our history, stories in our history. I don't want to call this a trigger warning exactly, but there are things in here that are hard to hear. Some of them just hard to hear ideologically, facing up to who we've been and who we are but some of them are just hard to hear. There are parts of the book that I could barely read through, and we talk about some of them in this episode. So just be prepared for that. It isn't something we should look away from, but, but I want you to know it's coming. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Box.com. Here is Isabel Wilkerson. Isabel Wilkerson, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So you tell a story in the book that has really stuck with me about being at a conference. It was about abolishing caste in India and you begin to realize, to the astonishment and the embarrassment of your hosts, that you can tell who at this conference was born high caste in India and who was born low caste, not from anything that they looked like, but from how they just acted around each other. What what were you able to see?
0: Well, I was able to see the interaction between the people that indicated one person felt very comfortable correcting the other person. They felt uh, entitled to uh, explain what the other person had just said. They uh, often literally stood above the other person. And it seemed to be a natural autonomic reaction that had been so ingrained as to not even be recognized by maybe, uh, certainly the person who was Presuming to explain what the other person had just said, but perhaps this it seemed to be a dance that they were automatically playing out. And it was as a result of that that I could see that there was this comfort level expectation and actual performance of dominance and subjugation that I could see. One of the best known and revered advocate for uh, the Dalits who who had formerly been known as the Untouchables, his name was Bim Rao and Bedker. He famously said that there is no such thing, I'm paraphrasing, that there is there is no such thing as caste. There is only castes, plural, so that a single person, a single group is just that single person or that single group. And that caste as a phenomenon only comes into play when individuals or groups that are assigned or seen as different uh, come in contact with one another and then have to adjust and navigate what the interaction will be and who will be dominant or subordinate. That's if you buy into the idea of dominance and subordination to begin with. But in a caste ranking hierarchy such as this, it, it came to be a dance between the two that that I was able to recognize time and time again. And, and it was on the basis of that that I could tell who was born to the dominant caste, uh, or castes, I should say, and who had been born to and uh, had been programmed, you might say, into the, the subjugated caste.
1: And this was at a conference that was about abolishing caste. So in theory, everybody at this conference, they didn't want this to be their relationship. And yet, even with people this cognizant of what it is they're dealing with it was still there it was still in their, their 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 basic interactions was that surprising to them when you pointed it out
0: it it was i mean i pointed it out to to one of the people in this in this uh on this panel that i was observing uh and i i mentioned it almost as a as an afterthought i mean i was curious because i had it seemed so dramatic so obvious to me and, um, this person said, Oh, you know, oh my goodness, I try so hard. Could you, you, you could tell, Oh my goodness, I try so hard. I work in this field. I, you know, I am immersed in this and I, I just try so hard. And it led, le- led to this just amazing uh, conversation, uh, that was, that, that ended in, you know, recognition and, and a sense of connection and, and even hugs at the end. Uh, so it was just a, it was a, an incredible moment to, of recognition. But I went in not knowing or expecting to be able to ascertain the difference, to be able to see the difference, and yet there it was. And and my intuition, my recognition of the the difference, uh, and and attributing who was what, ended up being correct because of the because of the autonomic reactions and behaviors within the, these interactions that I was observing.
1: I want to come back to the Indian caste system in a second, but but did as you began to get better at noticing this did it lead you to notice things in american interactions between people who are at different levels of the hierarchy like did you did you begin to see that you could actually extract the same kind of relational structure just by watching the way people spoke to each other here
0: well, you know, I have been exposed to hierarchy in the United States from growing up and, and living within this hierarchy, which did not have a name. Uh, I, I had no way of, of, you know, of describing it um, before I started to get into this topic. And so, yes, this, this, uh, these interactions were familiar to me. We now, in say the last 10 years or so, have given names to some of this kind of behavior, This, uh, this autonomic, inherited, unrecognized uh, behavior um, with such words as microaggressions, or um, there's a term that, that's popular on social media called white splaining or mansplaining or, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, there's probably a straight splaining. I mean, there's just wh- wherever the, the, the uh, appearance of dominance might be assumed uh, or, or in evidence based on the history, then it could be said that someone who's viewed as dominant or has been has been assigned to the dominant role or born to the the group that's viewed as dominant um, would would perhaps naturally uh, show some of these these similar behaviors so I I was accustomed to seeing it I think that being exposed to this in the Indian context I didn't I didn't know how that was going to play out because in India the differences are not physical they're not you know, they're not based on phenotype as they have been historically in the United States. So to be able to to be an outsider who is studying caste as a phenomenon and being able to see this play out in front of me, not on the basis of the uh, the cues that we are accustomed to in the United States, the visible signifier of one's place in the hierarchy, meaning what one looks like, meaning, and what one is perceived to be in terms of race. There was no clue. For an outsider, as to where a person from who happened to be from India might be ranked only in viewing the 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 behaviors and so that was eye opening to me to also see the through line in how human beings interact across you know across the oceans across cultures across time that human beings exposed to hierarchy tend to you know respond and act in similar ways i mean part of this whole effort uh, of of this book is to show uh, the uh the ways that we that we actually human beings actually have more in common than we might be might believe we have that there are these points of intersection even though cultures and countries may be very very different
1: i want to say and and i think it's something for the audience to keep in mind as we have this conversation i found this really valuable in the book there's a you've probably seen it online there's a Story format that became popular. I think it was like five or seven years ago, and it came out of Slate. Actually, it was called "How Would We Cover This If It Happened in Another Country?" And it's you would write about something that happened in America, and they'd be like, "In a society riven by racial tensions and authoritarian, right? Like, it's like, how would we talk about this if it was happening in like the former Soviet bloc or something?" And your book has a bit of that quality to it that, in re- reshaping this into this conversation and framework of caste, it makes America comparable, right? It makes it something you can begin to place into a, a, a lineage, and it has this funny way of letting us look at ourselves through outsider our eyes. Um, you do this with a bunch of different parts in the book. Um, you begin using different language, like the, the dominant, uh, the, the dominant group, and the subordinate group, and. Was that helpful to you as somebody who grew up in America to try to force yourself to alienate from it, even in the way you you spoke and wrote about it?
0: That's such a great point you're making, because that was literally the approach I was seeking to take. There's this film, the sleeper film called The Gods Must Be Crazy that came out years ago. And I'm not remembering exactly what the uh, the entire storyline was, but something had to do with something from the West arrived into this remote village in an African country and the people who received it, was it a bar of soap? I can't remember what it was, but they were looking at it. It seemed as if it had flown, arrived from out of the sky. And how did they interpret this thing that had arrived into their culture? And um, I tried to take the perspective of what would we be seeing if we didn't know what we were looking at? What would we be seeing if we did not see with the, with the same uh, lens through which that we're accustomed to that we've been trained to? What would we be seeing if we could somehow shed our programming and see things as someone who coming, was coming in from the outside with totally innocent uh, eyes without judgment, saw? of us. And and so your point is I uh, thank you so much for mentioning that cuz that that was one way that I was approaching it. That's one reason why I, you know, I did spend a lot of time actually outside of the country because I wanted to be able to even have the geographic distance. However, however long that might have been or however long or short, just the idea of being in the air and looking down on the planet from that perspective allowed me to have a little bit more distance from what uh, we often what we're what we're raised to believe and what we think we
1: know. I I love that. What would we be seeing if we didn't know what we were looking at? So so I want to actually start where a lot of us are not going to know what we're looking at. What is the Indian caste system based off of? What is it?
0: So the Indian caste system is a complex system that dates back for thousands of years. That essentially is is the structure of it is four main varnas. Uh, what we would consider castes that, you know, the Brahmin, the Kshatriya, the Vaisya, the Shudra, and then the outcasts, which were formerly known as untouchables and now are known as Dalits. And then there are within uh, and, and beneath all of those categories are thousands of subcastes that are connected to occupation and lineage, and underneath all of that are one of the, the sacred texts, the laws of Manu that's lays, that sets forth how each caste is to be treated, what rights they and privileges they have. It just sets forth the, the, the parameters for, for each of these groups. This is thousands of years old. And then it's important to note that it then got further complicated with the arrival of the British who then, um, affixed other things and other expectations and other ways of, of seeing that caste system, that ancient caste system that further complicated what was already a complex system of, of ranked value within the society. In addition to that, the word caste itself is not, uh, does not derive from India. The word derives from Casta, a uh, Portuguese word, which was affixed also to, uh, to India, uh, based upon what the Portuguese who arrived there, uh, during the era of exploration, uh, centuries ago. And they, they, they used this term c- casta to describe this hierarchy that they came across, these, Fixed divisions of infrastructure of divisions that they saw. And then, and, and interestingly enough, caste, costa, uh, is connected to the word breed or race. So all of these things are all intertwined as, uh, th- through the lens of Europeans who are observing this ancient system that is, um, extremely complicated and, uh, and that still has a shadow, of, you know, still has a shadows. There's still residue of that caste system, um, to this day in, in India.
1: But but, but at its core, right, if you, as I understand it, if you ask somebody who believed in that system 40 years ago, what justified it, or today, what justified it, you would get a religious answer that it was based on a a story about creation.
0: Absolutely, that the gods took the different parts of the body and created these different varnas, the brahmin from the head, um, the kshatriya, which was the group that was the warrior, uh, Kings, the rulers, uh, from the from a certain part of the body, the middle part. So in the Shudra were the feet, so that each one, each part of the body represented the role that each that each caste, each varna was to play in that society. So it was a religious religiously based caste system.
1: So it seems to me that what somebody might do here is say, well, that's not comparable to what has happened in America at all. Like that's based. Assuming that you are not yourself um, part of that religion, that's based on a on a mythical spiritual story that has no basis from outside of it in reality. But what has happened in America is based on a, on a real difference between human beings. It, it it's based on race, and maybe and obviously nobody's defending the way it was done. But I mean, people are different, and to deny that people are different, that there's a a real thing separating them, is to deny genetics and biology itself. So is race in America comparable to to a religious based class caste system I'm sorry in India or should we see race as similarly contingent and strange
0: Well the thing is that you know human beings uh, sadly have this impulse to to divide and to rank this artificial arbitrary Graded ranking of human value in a society is something that is is not uh, restricted to any you know to just the ones that I even looked at there and and if I were to look at all of them I would still be writing this book for the next thirty years so I decided to go deep rather than wide but the things that I did discover that you will see about any hierarchy is that any metric can be used to divide and to rank Uh, it depends upon what is considered to be uh, the value that is uh, ascribed to the dominant group. The dominant group determines what is the dividing line for themselves and those who are deemed beneath them. The metric could be any number of things. I mean, it could be religion, it could be uh, ethnicity, color of one's skin, geography, immigrant status, it could be any number of things. And all of them, however, are random and arbitrary. I mean, there's one example in the book in which I, I just posit the idea of another inherited physical trait that could have just as easily have been used as a dividing metric uh, in the American system, which would have been talls versus the short people, meaning height is is uh, strongly uh, connected to genetics or inherited uh, traits. It's an inherited trait, about 70, 80% of one's height is determined by by one's genes in the same way that one's Phenotype could also, is also connected to one's genes. And so that could just as easily have been used as a metric to divide people in a ranking. And that could have even been called race as opposed to what we now use uh, as the, the metric. You know, it's important to note that color is a fact. It's, it's a fact. Color is a fact, but race is a social construct. Color is a neutral, uh, inherited characteristic that that um, there's a range within the species, and these are neutral characteristics that should have no meaning uh, beyond just the fact that you can just say this person has this coloring, and it should have no meaning whatsoever. The idea of race is a fairly new concept in you know in human history, dating back to the exploration of of the world beyond europe by the european explorers and when they came uh in contact with people who looked different from themselves initially viewing themselves as central anyway they would have they would have viewed them th- these people as different but there was not the attachment of necessarily meaning to skin color itself that arose with the transatlantic slave trade in which There needed to be a justification for the dehumanizing exploitation of people who were from Africa who were brought to the new world in order to build uh, these colonies, uh, you know, the cheapest way possible. Uh, and, and people who were accorded no rights even over their own bodies. This is all this all grew out of the need to justify what was being done, justify this emerging hierarchy. And you know, to your point about is what are the, the similarities and differences, it turns out that because justification of inequality and inequity is one of the characteristics of a hi- of a hierarchy such as I'm describing, and I have these eight pillars of caste that I described, each one of these hierarchies will find some either uh, spiritual, you know, divine imperative for, for justifying what they do, or they might look at this as the laws of nature. So in the American context, there was great reliance on, um, on the story of Noah and his three sons and one of his sons, Ham, who happened to, uh, happened to see his father unclothed. He, you know, by accident, he saw his father unclothed. And for that reason, he was cursed. And then his descendants were viewed as cursed. And so, uh, people of African descent, Africans were viewed as the, the children of Ham, the descendants of Ham, and thus were cursed to be enslaved, cursed to be the servant caste of, of those who were deemed above them. Them. And so this also was used. I mean, again, the justification for the dehumanization and these artificial divisions that were viewed as part of the a kind of a the uh, the will, the will of God uh, that was just playing out. That the dominant group was was merely a- adhering to God's will in in subjugating people.
1: I want to hold on the, the construction of race. And I, and I want to say to people listening that if you've heard this idea that race is a social construct, and you're like, yeah, I, I kind of like, I, I really think your book has the single best discussion of this that I've read. And it's great on this subject. So people should read it. But I want to, before we come back to it, I want to sidebar on the Noah and Ham story for a minute. Your book is not funny. It's in fact incredibly, incredibly sad. But some parts of it are very funny, if you look at them from a, a different perspective. Or at least humanity is totally bizarre. The Noah and Ham story is so weird. Noah gets drunk, passes out naked. His son walks in and sees that he has passed out naked. Noah wakes up and curses his like his, his whole lineage. And then people later on pick this up and say, that's why slavery is good. It was Noah's fault. (laughs) Like the whole, it's such a, it's all so weird what we have built. Gigantic systems, not just of oppression, but like a lot of different human systems. But the stories we have chosen to take seriously, some of them are so strange when you just look at them without all of the crust we are given by our communities to not laugh.
0: You know, the willingness to believe and embrace what you just described, which does not make sense, which which should not, one would presume, continue forth for thousands of years on the basis of, of, of a man's you know, drunken curse against his son. I am as disturbed by the willingness to adhere to this for so long as I am by what happened to begin with. I mean, it's what do you do with what you're exposed to and the fact that this was the basis for, and repeated many, many times. I mean, many of the slaveholders and the advocates of, slavery, uh, going into the people who were you know, preparing for the Civil War justified uh, and felt quite godly. They felt that they were doing God's work by subjugating and oppressing and torturing even people on the basis of, of their lineage dating back to Africa, meaning this was something that people did to affirm what they were doing. And it Further distance themselves from other members of their own species because they felt that they felt a a righteousness in their behavior. They felt they were righteous in keeping people in a fixed place subordinate to themselves.
1: So, there are two directions I want to go in here. So, I want to maybe signpost this for a minute. I want to talk a bit about the construction of race, or at least affirm that that is a a thing, Um, because you do such a good job in the book showing how. Particularly color distinctions only start mattering in a certain way in a certain place. Like in Europe, which has a very bloody history and a history of conflict and subjugation and other things, color just isn't the dividing line. It's, it's in America that that become white is not a relevant construct in Europe. And, and I think a hundred years ago in America, I'm Jewish and my father is a Brazilian immigrant. I don't think I would have been considered white, at least not in the way I am today or 150 years ago in America. And I'd, I'd like to hear if, if you think that's right or wrong. But then I want to go into psychologically what this does to people. But but could you just talk a little bit about that? Could you just talk about the ways in which both the category of who is included in white and who becomes black and where black matters— how that's changed and like the the fighting among Asians maybe to be included as white like there's a there's a really rich history here that shows how much these are constructed boundaries
0: yeah, I wrote a book about this. <laughs> it's a lot. It's <laughs> <There's> a lot. <laughs> wow, how can I answer that question succinctly? Um, you know, one of the uh the quotes that stood st- stays with me from, that that uh, uh a playwright mentioned to me after I gave this talk in in London and she she came up to me and she said, uh, you know that there are no black people in Africa. And when I heard that, you know, as any American would, you're just thinking how could you say that? I mean, that makes no sense. Of course, there are black people in Africa. There's an entire subcontinent of people who are black in Africa. She happened to be of Nigerian descent, and she said that to me, expecting that exact response. And it shows you how um, we have absorbed the messaging of the you know of the generations and the centuries about something that is fairly new and is also arbitrary and more random than we would like to believe. And, and what she was saying was that people who are fr- from the subcontinent, um, sub-Saharan Africans, do not need to see themselves as Black. They do not see themselves as Black. They are not Black until they leave and then come to a place such as the United States or the UK where they are then assigned to a ranking they are seen only for what their the the color of their skin or what they look like where they're presumed to to what they what they are presumed to be in the context of the hierarchy that they enter and the same goes for people who are from other parts of of the world so getting back to europe you know thinking about the founding of the country the United States, as we now know it, was founded by, um, British col- English colonists who uh, you know because they were the ones who were founding it and they were they were trying to survive we know the hor- horrific decimation of the of of the indigenous indigenous people here uh and then the bringing you know the importing of of africans that then created a bipolar caste system as i'm describing it um indigenous people were exen- essentially exiled killed off and, and those who were who survived were exiled and then there was a, a bipolar system. So that anyone entering that bipolar system with uh, the British as the dominant group, because they were the founders of of what we now know to be the United States, and then the people who were assigned automatically to the bottom, who were the enslaved people who who were brought in from Africa, created this bipolar system. And anyone entering into this uh, hierarchy that was evolving in colonial um, uh, Virginia, the Chesapeake, would then have to figure out where did they fit in this bipolar system. And once arriving, it turned out that they actually were not given a choice. They had to be either one or the other, generally speaking. And people coming on coming in from other parts of Europe in the early going were just merged in with the British because they were building the, their, their dominant caste. So people were coming in primarily from Western Europe. And then with the passing uh, centuries, with people arriving from other parts of, of the world, and heading toward the you know the end of the 19th century with people from southern and eastern europe coming into the united states and the united states having to figure out who could qualify to be in this dominant caste and you know there were many um, you know efforts at limiting uh, the the uh, immigration to the united states uh, there was, of course, the 1924 uh, Immigration Act that restricted people who could come in from Southern and Eastern Europe. And in the process of doing that, uh, the people who, you know, the, the leadership, the, you know, both people who were advocating for this and the and, and uh uh the, the 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 legislation that emerged from this ended up becoming a form of of curating the population of the United States. In the process, though, it was also a defining, an attempt to define who could be part of the dominant caste and who would thus be accorded the term white or Caucasian in this country. There's so many cases of of, uh, people from outside of Western Europe, but primarily outside of Europe, petitioning the government, petitioning the courts to be recognized as Caucasian because, in fact, uh, this is another part of the absurdity, you know the word caucasian is a random term that came out of the mind of a german physician who had this fixation
1: with skulls i mean speaking of absurd you're shocking me it was a german physician who loved the skulls yes. huh
0: and he <laughs> collected these skulls and he had a he had a favorite skull that happened to be from the caucasus region So he said that this most beautiful skull, his favorite skull, would be called Caucasian. And he included himself in that group, uh, the, the best group in his view. And thus, that is the, that is where the term Caucasian comes from the irony is that uh in the early 20th century with the this attempt to curate through laws who could be part of the dominant caste who could be considered white there were people from that uh, closer to that region who were being rejected at the at that very moment at that they were trying to curate the country and in doing so curate the population and in doing so rejecting the petitions of people who were from, who were from that region, people who were from uh, Syria, for example, even there were restrictions on people who were Russian trying to get into the country, you know, where the Caucasus mountains actually are. Those were the very people who were being excluded because in the court cases, as you probably remember from, from the book, the judges in their effort to try to make sense of this or to actually rationalize what was irrational to begin with, would say, no, white does not mean the color of your skin. There was a Japanese uh, immigrant who had been in the country for a very long time. He petitioned the court because his skin was actually, he said, whiter than the people who are identified as white and thus can be citizens of this country. His petition was rejected because it was said that it was not about the color of your skin, actually. It was about how you would be perceived as a white person by the by a man on the street, how you were perceived, whether you were perceived as of, of a certain part of Europe or not. This is this is you know, even in talking about it, you can see how this the circular pretzel twisting that happens and even trying to discuss it is all an is all evidence of the random irrationality of trying to divide people up on the basis of some fixed endpoint of when one race begins and another race ends. You know, if you put have a continuum of all human beings on the planet, you would be able to recognize clearly the difference between those at the poles. And again, all this should be meaningless, these are meaningless inherited traits that should be no different with human beings than they are with flowers, but we are attaching, you know, historically we've attached meaning to these things. But once you line people up one next to the other, and then you try to delineate one group of people who might be from Peru, from a group of people, some ethnic group in South Africa and try to say which one is which, you cannot do it. And anthropologists have sought to do that. One of them came up with like 39 different races. And so it's all of this is arbitrary. And this is an effort to try to remind ourselves of the arbitrary artificial nature of the original ranking that has divided us for so long.
1: We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. I think this tension between the almost comically arbitrary nature of these distinctions, and then the unbelievably real, tangible consequences they've had in our societies and for people's lives. It's it's the central tension to me of your book. And so now I want to push into one of the heavier pieces of this to explore it. There are a lot of stories in your book that broke my heart a bit, um, but one of the ones that even now talking about it, even asking you to talk about it, like I find like a gorge rising in my throat. Could you tell the story of Willie James?
0: So Willie James was uh, a teenager, high school student in Florida in the early 1940s, and he was the only child, the beloved only son of, of a Black couple there in a, in a town there, uh, who was, uh, very excited, uh, at the uh, Christmas holiday because he'd gotten a job at a uh, store, general store in town, which was considered Uh, quite the accomplishment in the Jim Crow South for him to to get this job. And there, uh, he was so excited that uh, as Christmas approached, he uh, gave out uh, Christmas cards to all of his uh, co-workers. And in one of the Christmas cards, he uh, addressed it to uh, a girl there that he had a crush on. I believe her name was Cynthia. And he um, wrote an extra note in the card saying that, you know, he, for her, that that she uh, was Someone that he could would love to have as a, as a sweetheart, and he a- ended it with with L, uh, and then his name. And um, he he sent that card to her. Uh, it would be viewed as a a sweet gesture for most uh, young people, most teenagers uh, who have a crush on someone. But in the Jim Crow South, it was a, a dangerous thing that he had done. He was black and, and the girl that he had the crush on was white. Uh, the girl uh, showed the card to her father and the father gathered uh, a, a posse of men to go and to abduct the boy, uh, took the, the boy's father with him when they abducted, uh, abducted him and, um, took him, uh, to the banks of, of a river and forced him, uh, to jump in front of his stricken, Father who was also held at gunpoint and not able to help his only child. And that is, that was the consequence of the breach of what, of one of what I call the pillars of caste, which would be, uh, it's called endogamy or the restrictions on intermarriage between groups or between castes, but it extends to romantic interest on any level uh, when it's t- taken to its strict. Interpretation, and he had inadvertently, in a sweet and innocent way, breached one of the the uh, ironclad uh, pillars uh, of caste, and, and paid for it with his life. And his father suffered unimaginable grief, beyond just beyond imagining.
1: When you tell the story in the book, you record um, the note that Willie James gave Cynthia after he heard his original note might have offended her. I'm going to read it because I want to talk about this part of the story. I'm not doing this just to put everybody through pain here. Um, But he writes her on New Year's Day, 1944. I know you don't think much of our kind of people, but we don't hate you. All we want is to be your friends, but you won't let us. Please don't let anybody else see this. I hope I haven't made you mad. And at the end, he writes, "I love your name. I love your voice. For a sweetheart, you are my choice." And for that, he's killed in front of his father. The thing I want to ask you about this is about the psychology of caste. When you tell this story, the girl's father and the two other white men who hogtie this child and force him to jump into a river in front of his own parent, they are monsters. I mean, monsters. And I'm sure they thought of themselves as good fathers, good Christians, pillars of the community. How does something like caste exert such psychological power that it can turn men into savages in that way that they can respond to that note with murder like uh with a like murder like performative murder like how what to you is like a psychological underpinning of this how is it so powerful when it's built on something so flimsy
0: well, that's the reason why I mentioned the eight pillars. Why I compile the eight because they're all necessary, and you can see that when you have eight pillars holding up an infrastructure, then you have, you know, you have reinforcement from every direction in a society. And when I mentioned, you know, i often describe our country as being like an old house and in that, you know, the, the pillars and the joists are not visible to all of us. I mean, we can't see the pillars and the joists and the beams and the houses that we might live in, um, but that we know that they're holding, them, holding us up and they're more powerful because we cannot see them, but we rely upon them. And so, in that way, passing down through the generations of a sense, speaking, you know, speaking of say uh, what what people believed as a result of the story of Noah, of a righteous obligation to maintain the hierarchy as one has inherited it through the generations, the sense of you are not upholding your responsibility if you do not maintain these ba- boundaries and these rankings. That it's your duty as a member of the dominant caste who has who has a divine responsibility to live up to a particular ideal and if this is passed down through the generations and reinforced through led, through law and reinforced through every exposure to uh even illustrations about what people look like you know all of the caricatures and the minstrelsy that all were working to reinforce the inferiority the perceived inferiority of one group and the perceived purity and superiority of another group you know at every turn in stories uh in children's nursery rhymes and stories i mean they the the it was these were reinforced at every turn commercials the packaging on soap and on flour and on syrup, you know, which would have the, you know, Ann Jemima depictions or the depictions of, of a tattered black child, a slave child um, who was unkempt, unclean. And there's one ad that shows uh, a black child has to, you know, gets in the tub and is scrubbed down with this soap and then turns to be not black or not what they're looking, not what they were before. The, the ways that this imagery Serves to, un- to underlie, to reinforce the encoded messaging, the training and the programming that would justify almost anything being done to people who are viewed as not human. Dehumanization is one of the pillars of caste and it's, it was reinforced in, in large and small ways. One of the ways was that there were, I, I was shocked to discover this. I didn't know that these things even existed, but there were actually son of ham, sideshows and games and um, rides at many uh, amusement parks well into the middle of the 20th century, I mean, into the 1960s, apparently, as far as I could see them, uh, uh, that I was able to, to find. And they were ones in which, say, uh, the goal was to throw, you know, baseballs at the head of a Black person who was there to be dehumanized for the amusement of children, which would help to, uh, you know, reinforce force The inferiority, the perceived inferiority, the idea that anything could be done to the people, uh, the the idea that one's interaction with the people was essentially one that where one could be violent and and actually be rewarded for it. And, you know, ultimately the dehumanization of the people, which which creates distance that allows a person to feel that they are not doing anything wrong, that in fact they're doing the right thing by adhering to the rules and expectations and the pillars of caste.
1: When you think about how that works, how do you th- think it feels? Um, and I know this is I, I know this is a strange way to come at it, but when we talk about dehumanization, and I've read literature on dehumanization and studies about how we dehumanize others, but you imagine looking at a person in front of you and throwing a baseball at their head. Or, you know, when I read your stories of lynchings in here, and you talk about the people crying and sobbing. As the men who are about to kill them talk about which body parts they're going to take home, it's somehow just saying like we dehumanize each other because there's a, like how how weak are we as people? Like that that in some ways is what this comes down to for me. Like how weak is the decent parts of human nature if we can ignore the obvious humanity of the people in front of us because a story has told us to do so? Did you read anything that helped? show that to you? Did you see anything that helped to you explain how the very people you know as decent people today might have been the people on one side or another of these horrible acts 50 years ago or 100 years ago? Do you feel like you understand that better?
0: Well, again, I mean, the, the people saw themselves as decent and righteous. So they they were not, in their view, bad people at all. They were good people upholding and maintaining the inheritance what the, what they were what they had been trained and expected to do they view themselves on the right side of how a human being should behave in a cult in the culture into which they were born they did not see um, anything wrong with what they were doing. In fact, at many of the lynchings, people took photographs of themselves. They had, there were children who they, they would let, in some cases, they would let the schools out so that children could attend. There, there are photographs of children who are posing next to the person who has just been killed, and they're not looking fearful. You know, they're looking either, you know, with a sense of satisfaction or that they're doing the right thing or that, that they're smiling. Um, they're, there's a disconnect. There's a complete and total disconnect from the the horror that has just occurred. And, you know, beyond that, people would actually send postcards to one another of the photographs. There would actually be someone on site, uh, a photographer on site, to capture this so that people could have this to send to people, to their relatives, to show that they'd attended one. So this was an entire mindset. It was an entire framework for viewing you know interaction between the groups and how the groups were to be treated the way that i look at it is that if people have been exposed to this for long enough it becomes normal it's, it they they dehumanization became normalized and you know i think that it it allows us to see the power of the subconscious in the power of you know some of these things were 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 absorbed through this through the culture and absorbed into the subconscious and the subconscious you know one of the you know roles of that is to help us to survive and people are doing this to survive in the world into which they're born. No one asks to be born uh, to the dominant caste or the subordinate caste in any hierarchy. You have nothing to do with where you happen to be born, and people uh, are born into this and they absorb the messaging of everything around them uh to break free of that takes a tremendous amount, particularly when in the era of formal, legal Jim Crow, the era that we're speaking about, um, it would have taken a tremendous courage and some People did, but it took tremendous courage to break free. And many people just broke free by leaving. I mean, that was the only because you, you, as an individual, they were not going to be able to change the you know essential framework of the society in which they were living. And that also caused more problems because it meant the people who were most you know um, open minded would be the ones who might be leaving. But uh, essentially, it, it would be at one's own peril if you broke rank. An idea of that's a phrase that we often think about breaking rank and the idea of breaking caste. So breaking rank carries. Uh, carries consequences, and th- th- these are consequences that people would rather not take on. And so the the, the, the point of least resistance was to go along with the flow of the world into which you were born and your placement in that caste system, and in fact, to rise in it by showing that you were going to be one of the quote-unquote upstanding people who was going to uphold it better than anyone
1: else. I want to pick up on the word rank there, because it reminds me of this amazing moment in your book where the American system of race and caste, in much the way you're trying to put it in uh, a comparative international perspective here, actually ends up in international perspective with completely bizarre results. So could you talk about a bit about what happens when America sends white and Black soldiers to fight alongside the French in World War One?
0: Yes, such a, just unbelievable. Uh, the French were Desperate, you know, very anxious to get additional um, troops, and uh, the Americans uh, sent them um, colored, what they were then known as colored troops. They sent them black, black soldiers, and uh, the French were grateful to have uh, to have the help, and they they uh, from uh, from the uh, black American soldiers and found them to be hardworking, very strong. Um, that they were found them to be of tremendous help to them, and were very impressed by them. But the way that they were interacting with these soldiers, who they had come to depend upon and view as n- necessary and important to their to their work, uh, to their defense, the ways that they treated them, where they were treating them as as other soldiers, so they would eat with them, they would might have pat them on the back and compliment them on a job well done or wh- whatever it is that had that they had uh, just experienced, they would compliment them, and this rankled the white soldiers. Who were seeing this? Who who saw this as a breach of the caste norms that they were accustomed to back in the states, and they uh, they they were very angry about that. And so uh, a missive went to the French command, uh, in which the the French were told that they were not to treat the uh, Black soldiers as equal. They were not to, to commend them on anything that they did. They were not to eat with them. They were not to speak with them as if they were equal. They were not to treat them as equals in any way, that this was not the way they were to be treated. This is not the way they would be treated back in the United States and that they were to adhere to the essentially the caste norms that would have been in place in the United States. And then the French had to figure out a way to explain that to their to their uh their troops and, and their command and they they had to find a way to explain that and you know they they essentially at one point they're saying you know we did not know that we were we were insulting the, the the white uh officers and the white um the white soldiers but apparently we are and we have to stop doing this we have to we cannot commend them we cannot tell them that they're doing a good job we cannot eat with them so they had to in line with the the hierarchy that Black soldiers found themselves having to work and fight under you know, in another country, far from home. It, it followed them wherever they went.
1: So it's so unbelievably fragile. It, it, it's like, that's what I always take from that story, just the unbelievable fragility of the white soldiers, right? And how little it turns out the advantage is built on. So as soon as somebody else comes in and isn't respecting it, it comes it's simply a story. And you need to make other people both like believe in the story or at least reinforce the story because if the story goes away, the whole thing goes away. Um, it's so fragile.
0: What you said is so powerful because perhaps that is one of the central points of all of this, is that because it is so fragile, it is defended with such force and such uh, rigidity mm-hmm. because maybe underneath it all, people do know uh, and you know, somewhere in in their heart or mind, they know how how fragile this is. How how this is not real. That this is this is built on such a fragile foundation uh, and belief system that one single thing could turn it in a different direction. That it is that it, there is no basis for it actually, and so one would defend it all the more.
1: We've been talking throughout here primarily the stories we've been telling happened you know a hundred years ago eighty years ago 60 years ago would you say America has a caste system today?
0: I would say that because we uh, you know we were founded on this hierarchy that is you know that, that all, the the history shows that we were founded on this hierarchy and the hierarchy was defined and reinforced by the laws and then enforced and upheld uh, by those who you know by, by other institutions so that we this is what we have inherited and I would also remind uh, you know all of us that the infrastructure, the legal infrastructure of the caste system was not overturned until the 1960s then 1964 65 and 68 until that time there was a legal framework for the caste system that I'm describing. so the idea of vanquishing or of addressing this, from a legal perspective, is only within the last 50 or 60 years. It's a relatively new way of being. It's relatively new in the United States for the people who had been designated and assigned to to the subordinated group. It's a very new idea of their being mainstreamed into society as a whole. It's you know, when you think about the long arc of history, both on um, uh, you know in this what what became the United States, and of course in, in human history, it's a very very short period of time. You're talking a couple of generations uh, where African Americans have only recently been brought into the mainstream. So as a result of that, we still live with live with the residue, if nothing else, of this originating caste system. We live under the shadow of this caste system, and we see evidence of it at different points. You know, when, when we When we look at these, uh, at the uh, impulse to surveil and police. Uh, African Americans who are going about their days, just you know, as as an ordinary person might be, you know, sitting at a Starbucks waiting for a friend, or barbecuing uh, in a park in in Oakland, or just trying to get into one's uh, uh, apartment building in 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 Oakland or in S- St. Louis. There were two two videos that came out that of the many many videos that have have recorded these things that that show that there's still this impulse, this recognition on the part of some people to police and surveil those that they somehow subconsciously recognize to be the subordinated group in the country. And this idea of questioning and surveilling and uh, maintaining boundaries around people who are seen as being in places where they're not supposed to be, and and this is one of the ways that I would say we live still under the shadow of of a caste system.
1: I, I want to talk about what it, that residue and what it feels like today. It is so short. My mother grew up when segregation was legal. My mother, like one generation for me, and. It's nothing. It's nothing. And I've heard people deny that this stuff has a legacy, who nevertheless have written books about their own grandparents and how they've shaped their life. It's the weirdest thing to me, the kind of um, atemporality of our conversation around this. It's so short, but it's also very different. And, and and the last part of your book felt to me in a really interesting and very challenging way to be describing what it feels like... Um, to live uh, in, in this period. And so you write that in everyday terms, it's not racism that prompts a white shopper in a clothing store to go up to a random black or brown person who is also shopping and ask for a sweater in a different size, or for a white guest at a party to ask a black or brown person who is also a guest to fetch them a drink, as happened to Barack Obama as a state senator. And, and here you're making this argument that caste helps explain the expectations we put upon each other and the way we treat each other in a way that words like racism or even it seems to be structural racism don't so can you talk about that distinction the the way how you're using caste in a way that is different than the conversation maybe about structural racism
0: you know i'm saying that this is the underlying infrastructure for all of the divisions which and you can you can attach any other metrics to it there are you know there is intersectionality to use that famous phrase even in this context because you could bring gender in as a as one of the factors that could adjust where one fits in the hierarchy you could you could add one's religion could place one in a particular place in even the American hierarchy, where you could include immigrant status, what part of Europe were your ancestors from? You know, there's there are subcasts within the caste, And so, but underneath all of that is the underlying invisible infrastructure that is the basis for the assumptions that there need to be divisions in the first place. And the assumptions that this graded ranking in a society that uh, then accords respect or benefit the doubt or the lack thereof, of or resources or the lack thereof, assumptions of, com- of competence and intelligence and beauty, resourcefulness, all of those things through no fault of one's own. These are the kind of things that you could have many different metrics that go into how an individual is read in a caste system. But the caste system is what's underneath all of that. And you know, I describe caste as the bones And then race as the skin and then class, like the third variable in this three legged source or of of identity or of assumptions would be the thing that are the, that's the clothes and the diction, accents and education and and what one can do to present oneself to the world to present, presumably move up or down or position oneself. But, you know, I, I often say that if you can act your way out of it, it's class. If you cannot act your way out of it, it's caste. And so that is why I make this distinction between race and caste and then racism and casteism which is what we've been talking about here because they are they intersect and they support one another but race is the tool and the signifier of where one is perceived to belong in the hierarchy in terms of one's value in the society.
1: This actually gets to a question I had for you, and it's really helpful for me. So if you can act your way out of it, it's class. If you can't, it's it's caste. Um, I was going to ask, and I'm st- I think I'm still going to do it, if class and class signifiers are our caste system. And and what you're saying here is that they're not because they have a fluidity to them, a, a permeability to their boundaries, that that something like race doesn't cast as a more fixed nature than race. But then, how does that account for the the changing nature of race?
0: Well, race is the is the tool of caste root race is is the signifier of caste. race is the mechanism by which we recognize or are told who matters and then the question is though race can be fluid because race as we were just talking about the the 1924 immigration act um, the legislation that was used to curate the population particularly a population of of what are identified as white people white americans so that race is the characteristic that can shift and be flexible all to the goal of maintaining uh, and strengthening the the people the the group that's viewed as dominant so as the numbers might uh numbers might fall or numbers might change then people who might not have been considered White in a different era might be considered white in an era in which the caste system might benefit the dominant group in the caste system might benefit now these are things that are that are going beneath the surface i mean that's the power of caste to begin with again they're the they're the bones they are the the joists and the pillar the the joists and the beams and the pillars that we cannot see, and yet they're working underneath of it because we can see the manifestations we can see the the effect of it and so the idea of race as something that is flexible allows the allows the idea of caste to remain fixed as long as race as, as as you know social construct can adjust to the needs of the caste system it can be adjusted as necessary to maintain the ranking and the um, and you know in terms of dominance the dominance of the of the um the group that's viewed as on top
1: but then why shouldn't I think of class as a kind of caste system? It has signifiers, it changes its shape sometimes, but it is this way in which we order people, um, people who have the signifiers of of being higher in economic and social class. They are considered better. They are assumed to be able to um, be in different roles. I mean, and this affects everything. There's a New Yorker piece 10, 15 years ago back now, but I always think about it, about how teeth are an incredibly powerful signifier of class, that um, poor people often have had worse dental care, they've lost teeth, and they their jobs that they're not assumed to even be able to be in, like, you know, you don't want them interacting with customers, that kind of thing. So, Why should I not see America as having multiple caste systems that are intersectional, as you say, and class is one, and maybe gender has dimensions of this, as opposed to sort of one caste system?
0: Well, again, caste is something that you if it's the bones, you can't see it. So by definition, it's the underlying hierarchy that says some group has to be on top some group has to be on the bottom and those in between have to juggle and navigate to figure out where they will survive in the caste system so it's it's invisible it's part of the structure structure is generally not visible unless you're looking for it you know i make reference to infrared light x-rays and all that to say that this is something that we we cannot see but a, a, as we can't see the pillars and the joists and the beams in the house we live in the things that you can see are then the tools that are there uh, the, the the outward manifestation that is the cue as to where a person fits, and so class would be more like race, meaning the thing that can can adjust to the prevailing sentiments or needs of the underlying you know infrastructure, the underlying structure. Uh, class is something that that would mean different things in different places. You dress a certain way in one era, and you dress it another way in a different era. So that is something that can change. But again. If you can act your way out of it, it's class. If you cannot act your way out of it, it's caste. And so there are some examples of that where one one thing that I do in the book is I actually uh, spend a little bit of time talking about um, what it's like when you're on that boundary. That's where you can see the tensions manifest more clearly when you have accounted for all the other things you have, you know, caste is underneath of it, um, and then you have, race, which is a social construct, but is the cue as to where someone fits in the hierarchy. And then you can have someone who is of this subordinated, born to the subordinated. Cast, but then rises in class, because these are the things that you can do something about. You can, you know, adjust your clothing. You can, you can adjust your diction. You can, um, you can shed an accent that might have revealed something about yourself that you, you feel does not put you in the, in the strongest position. Uh, you can get an education. You can get, you know, uh, the highest possible education. You can do all, do all the things, of those things. And then the question would be, then what happens in a caste system when someone has accounted for class. And yeah and that and they also carry the physical signifier of what we call race. And so what happens is that they then get collated into they get uh still reminded of and assigned to the lowest rank in terms of caste. So there's an example out of the out of the UK, I and mean, it could have just happened anywhere, but uh it happened this not that long ago where the the editor of British Vogue, who would have been one of the best dressed people on the planet, happened to be of Nigerian descent and he um he went into his own building uh in in London and and when he went into the building he was told by the security guard again, surveilling and policing, told by the security guard to to use the freight elevator in his own building. And this is one where no matter what he had done, he would have had you know the, the accent, the bearing, the clothing, all of the, the signifiers of class, but he was instantly recognized because of the cue, the, the tool of race, that he should go to the freight elevator in his own building, the building that where he was the editor of that magazine. When it comes to there's a case that I referred to of Forrest Whitaker one of our most you know um, esteemed um, actors who's won an academy Award and he went into uh, uh, an upscale deli in Manhattan and he went in to get something what what he wanted he, he didn't they didn't have it and he he didn't see it so he went to walk out and they blocked him at the door and then they they searched him they this the staff Uh, uh, searched him in front of other customers, had him on the ground searching him in such a humiliating display because what they saw was the signifier of his cast not seeing his class. So again, if you can act your way out of it, it's class. If you cannot act your way out of it, it's cast.
1: Let's take a quick break right here and then we'll be right back. I I really appreciate some of those examples you just gave, because they get to something that seems really important in the final section of the book. You write that if there's anything that distinguishes caste, it is first the policing of roles expected of people based on what they look like, and second, the monitoring of boundaries. And you tell a lot of stories um, towards the end of the book, um, including stories that you yourself experienced, of people whom from one perspective, you know, made it. right. You're a New York Times reporter in a, during a lot of this period. You're now an award-winning author, a journalism professor. I think a lot of people would say, well, aren't you proof that there's no caste system, but that your experiences over and over and over again, people trying to reinforce the boundaries on you and that taking a toll. C- could you talk a bit about the uh, plane flight you took to Detroit and the experience you had with the DEA officers there?
0: Yeah, so it was a routine, um, you know, uh, story that I was working on um, because I was living in Chicago, uh, you you know, going to Detroit was almost like, I I used to say that I would catch planes, like people catch cabs because it was just part of the job. You just did this. We were, as based in the Midwest, so we we could be in Minneapolis one day and St. Louis the next day was not that big of a deal. Um, it was close enough that it would just be a day trip and that's what this was going to be. I landed very early in the morning uh, because it was a day trip and I was going to be interviewing several, you know, a, a lineup of people that were all set uh, to go. Uh, I didn't have any any luggage. I just arrived there with, my, with the things that I needed for the interview, my bag and my, my notebook and that sort of thing. Um, It was something that I did all the time. It was no big deal. It was just part of the job. And um, as I was making my way to the rental car bus, I could hear these footsteps behind me. There were these people behind me and they were uh, gaining on me. And they then on each side of me, there was a man and a woman who were now tracking me. They were now walking alongside me flanking me and beginning to ask me questions they were asking uh where have you just come in from um, what why are you in detroit uh what is it that you do they were asking me all these questions that were you know out of the ordinary intrusive and because i was focused on i was a frequent flyer who was you know conducting business and had a shuttle bus to catch so i could get to my next uh in, my first interview i was a, a little like it just i just wasn't processing what it was that they were even asking i actually thought that they were maybe with some of the tourism board who was, you know, trying to figure out, you know, uh, taking a survey or something. It was, it was, but it was slowing me down and I was not really, <laughs> I, I didn't have the time to be talking with them. And they continued to follow me anyway and they continued to ask me questions. And at a certain point, you know, I I said, you know, what is this for? And they said, we're with the DEA and we need to know where you're coming from, uh, what you're doing here in Detroit, how long you're going to be here, where you work for, all these questions they had. And I, I you know, I, I told them that, you know, just, you know, just I'm with the New York times. I'm here for a story. I'm, I'm coming in from Chicago. You know, I told them, I answered those questions and thought that it would be done, but then they continued to follow me. They actually were holding me up at the, at the base of the, of the bus while the bus was getting ready to take off, ready, ready to, to head to the park, to the uh, Avis lot. And I, uh, I was just fl- floored by all that was happening. It was embarrassing. You know, there are the people on the the bus who other business travelers who are wondering, you know, why is this woman and these people holding us up? Why aren't, why aren't we moving forward? This is, you know, taking up our time. So it was not a. It was a very tense moment. So I, I board uh, because I have to board the the bus. And thinking that it's over, I, I get I get on the bus, and it turns out that they followed me on the bus. They sat positioned directly in front of me, watching everything that I was doing. Meanwhile, everyone else on the bus was uh, watching this go on as well, you know, trying to figure out what is it that's happened? What is it that this woman has done? Uh, what is it that is wrong? And I was the only African-American on the bus, uh, one of very, very few women on the bus. So these were business travelers very early in the morning. Everyone on the bus was very likely doing what I was doing. And they very likely were there for the day trip just as I, but I was the only one who was being surveilled, policed, and focused in on in this way. And uh, I was... Unnerving. It was, uh, disorienting. It was heart, heartbreaking. It was wrenching to be isolated and uh, basically accused without cause by the, by the circumstances alone. And, and everyone else on the bus was picking up on the, on the energy. And there's no show of, of empathy, uh, for me in in that moment. And as we approached the lot, I mean, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. So my, my reaction was just to do what I do, which is to start taking notes because That is I told them that that was what I was. I told them I was a reporter and I also had no other way of protecting myself or or even making sure that I could recall what was going on. So I just started to take notes. I took notes about what they looked like. I took notes of what they were doing at that precise moment. I just wrote notes through my, you know, my nervous right hand. And uh, as we approached the parking lot, when we finally arrived, I got up to leave not knowing what was going to happen And as I got up to leave, they just said, have a nice day. And I, you know, went to get my car. But when something like that happens to you, that jars you, that intrudes into your uh, ordinary life, that accuses you through the circumstances and their actions of being something that you're not, of uh, the assumptions attached to what you look like, because that's all that they could have gone on. There's literally nothing else that would have been a marker of anything. That is demoralizing. It, 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 it takes a long time to recover from that. And one of the lessons to me, uh, that I would hope people would take a- away from this is not just the effect on me, which was immense, uh, particularly in the moment, but also on our society. Because this, if you multiply what happened that day, Uh, You know, the the fact that I ended up having to be I was disoriented and unmoored by what had happened. So it took me a while to just get my head together to to, to prepare for the the interview that I was trying to get to. I got turned around in the parking lot, a parking lot that I knew like the back of my hand. I knew it so very well and I still got turned around. So there there are consequences to the person who is the target of such a thing. But there are consequences for the society at large because when this happens, and you multiply it times millions of people in a given day, working in hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of different companies and institutions on a given day, how this affects the smooth running of an of an of an organization or a business? How it run? How it affects uh, the work that people are having to do? How it how it throws them for whatever time period that it throws them? These are disruptions into the efficient working of a society and an economy. These are disruptions that affect people's ability to do their job and thus affects you know companies and organizations in ways that they may not even calculate because these things are happening on a regular basis. We now see them in the videos, but these are things that have been happening for a very long time and continue to disrupt the lives of ordinary people just trying to do their job.
1: I think one of the big debates in American life over the past couple of years is how seriously to read events like that one. And you have a lot of these stories through the back part of the book and people now call them microaggressions. And I've read books where people argue these are, you know, misunderstandings, or even if they do have like a racial inflection, like, can't we just be generous to each other? Can't we take this stuff a little bit less seriously? Can't we not be jumping down each other's throats? And obviously somebody who can make these mistakes myself, like there's an, an appeal to everybody being very forgiving. But one of the things that I feel like your book is, does really well is begin to give a felt sense of what the cost of this is. You you write about caste and living in it, even living as somebody who's done really well, as stealing the time and psychic resources of the marginalized, of draining energy in an already uphill competition. And there's this like big fight right now about whether we are going to like as a culture like listen to people when they say this is worse than you think or not, Right? whether we're just going to say, oh, you're just being politically correct. And one of the things that's really persuasive to me in it is it it's not just psychic, it's health. So could you talk a little bit about the weathering effect?
0: Yeah, that's one um, objective way to measure what others might want to dismiss as a mere misunderstanding or misinterpretation of something. I mean, first of all, no one can you know, unless you are in the bodies of the people who are who are testifying to what they're experiencing, no one is really in a position to say what it's like to walk around in the body of another. You just simply cannot. Um, there have been, you know, one of the things that that I cite is the work of um, a political scientist who asked his students. These were white students. If you were told that you had to be black for the next 50 years. What would you think would be fair compensation for living a life for 50 years as a Black person in America? And the students thought about it and they debated among themselves. And then they came back with a number, and that number was $50 million. The white students said that they would need to be paid $50 million to live for 50 years as a Black person in America, meaning they would need a million dollars per year to live as a Black person, to be Black, meaning fifty a million dollars a year to be what 40 million Americans actually are and ha- actually have to live with every day without, I might add, the million dollars. So there's an awareness, there's a subconscious awareness of the cost of of living uh, in, a, in a body that has been marked and signified uh, as, and, and, uh, as, a, as a signal, a cue, of one's subjugated ranking in the society. There's, there is an awareness uh, that those students showed that they had. So the weathering is another way of looking at what those students recognized. In fact, one of the reasons that they said that they would need one million dollars a year is because they were anticipating the problems that they would run into if they were black. And they felt they would need that much in order to counter the disadvantages, the cost of, of living as a black person. Uh, again, most the vast majority of black people do not could not even imagine of getting anything remotely close to that. they And they still have to live with this. Um, and one of the effects is called weathering, which is the effects of stress of this kind at a cellular level in people who, are, who have to live with this every day. And what that means is that the telomeres of the cells, the ends of the telomeres actually shorten with greater exposure to these kinds of stressors. And so this has an impact on many millions of of Americans. What's interesting about it is that when they, that this is not, it's not something that occurs just to African-Americans. In other words, the weathering could occur with any group if they are exposed to the kind of stressors that African-Americans have been exposed to. An interesting point of this is that uh, that when um, studies have been done of Mexican Americans, um, when they are um, middle class and educated, they too show uh, the the weathering uh, of their telomeres. But in- interestingly enough, uh, you know, getting to what we were sp- saying about class and and the influence influence of that, it turns out that newly arrived immigrants from Mexico do not have the same level of weathering that shows up in 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 their with their telomeres that. In fact, there's a kind of protection because they are somewhat isolated. Now, this is not to suggest that there are, that the isolation of immigrants is a good thing in any way, shape, or form. I'm merely saying that scientifically, uh, it show it turns that turns out that the isolation from the immersion and in the uh, constant bumping up against the boundaries of the caste system, the isolation protects them from the ill effects. That could be seen at the cellular level in the telomeres of people who are bumping up against, in some ways, breaching the boundaries of where they're expected to be in the caste system.
1: I've had David Williams, who 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 you talked to in the book, and he's just amazing on these issues on this podcast, and people should should listen to that episode. But something you you discuss here is that you see this in hypertension, and I, I found this so fascinating that it's well known, right? African Americans have higher hypertension rates than whites, but that you write that hypertension rates of blacks and whites are roughly the same when affluent African-Americans are deleted from the equation. The caste system takes years off the lives of subordinate caste people the more they find themselves in contention with it. You would imagine the opposite, right? You would think hypertension would be worse the lower down the income ladder you go. But on hypertension and, and a few other things, you see it more when people have this Kind of daily out of place contention, right? This 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 need to be straining in a system that is not built for them, and maybe um, imposes a lot of stress as they try to navigate it. That is an incredible penalty to impose on people for doing well.
0: Well, in some ways, if you think about a caste system um, seeking to maintain the pre-existing hierarchy, and and if if someone breaks from that hierarchy, and and essentially by their Actions by their achievements then call into question the just the initial organizing justification for the uh for the caste system itself which be which would be that certain people are either cursed or incapable of doing the things that people in the dominant caste are called upon or born to do then that means that you're automatically in contention with a, a central principle of the caste system itself. And, and so there would be more stressors on those people who find themselves um, having to, uh, you know, on um, many levels. One is that they are having to transcend and fight against the stereotypes that, that they, they confront just by showing up. They also have to, they deal with the stress of having to prove themselves as competent as anyone else, or even more so if that's their talent. Um, So there are so many boundaries that they have to uh, transcend in order to just do what anyone else could just, would just come in and just do their, do what is expected. Um, And so this takes a toll. One of the interesting things is that it's not, we, it, it, I had to look up that what you described there about the hi- hypertension being higher with the higher socioeconomic status, which makes sense from a caste perspective. But I had to, I had to check and double check that. I mean, I had to make sure I was reading this correctly because it goes against everything that we would be, t- you know, we would believe. Of course, these studies are um, are taking into account such things as access to health care and that sort of thing. So when you consider all of that. The people who are ha- who are of higher socioeconomic status are more in the the line of fire. They're more in contention with the caste system. They have, have to negotiate and navigate the caste system at a higher degree and in places where they're not expected to be more likely. They are taking on roles that would not be expected of people of their of their caste, and by doing that, they put themselves in contention and thus at risk for higher um, blood pressure, other um, um, health Ill-, Ill health effects. Which you know, in, in some ways, is a form of the caste system enforcing itself because it actually could be seen as a form of discouragement from people rising out of the place that had been assigned them so long ago.
1: You make a very provocative argument. Uh, in the book, that this is now happening in reverse too. So you talk about the deaths of despair finding of of Deden and Case, which is that uh, white sort of working age males, particularly um, in the kind of Midwest of the country, but not only, they're seeing their life expectancy go down, and it's coming from suicide, from alcoholism, from opioid addiction, um, things like that. Deaths they, they call these deaths of despair because. In their view, they're coming out of a kind of despair. And there's a tendency to put this on economics. But as you know, the economic situation has been worse um, for Black Americans, for Hispanic Americans during the same period. And your argument is that this is actually cast acting on these lower class whites, that the psychic tension and strain of beginning to lose that Place in society as Barack Obama becomes president, Kamala Harris is going to be the vice presidential nominee. Like society is changing, and that the stress of um, feeling like you're, you're losing your place in the hierarchy is literally killing a lot of these white men. Can you talk a bit about that idea?
0: Yes, I mean it's it the um, mortality rate is rising more rapidly for this one group compared to other groups. Other groups may actually have higher rates of death, but their mortality rates have been falling over the past decades and generations. And for the first time in 2014, the study found that the mortality rates for this subset of white Americans has actually been rising. They are dying at a a faster rate. And for Uh, For reasons that are, that would be avoidable. These are, these are deaths of despair, deaths that do not have to happen. They, they are people who are dying of such things as alcoholism and drug abuse uh, and suicides that are avoidable deaths, but deaths that are capturing a kind of emotional state and a sense of. Being ill at ease, in despair, you know. As you said, I mean, there there have been um, many explanations for this, and e- economics is is one of them. But as you said, you know, the economy, unemployment is higher for Black and Brown people. Uh, the safety net uh, that that um, makes life more precarious for uh, working class white people is equally as. Uh, Challenging for people who are Black and Brown and working class as well. So, the, the, what is the difference? Why all of these groups should be rising or falling in the same at the same level, and yet this one group? actually also singular among Western nations, because other nations that have been dealing with deindustrialization and have been dealing with uh, economic uh, upheaval. And yet here in this one case, this is the stood out um, because of this. So one of the, one of the ways of looking at this is a, a political term known as dominant group status threat, in which uh, one can feel an existential threat to one's survival, even because of changes that build up a kind of insecurity in oneself. Because the world as one has known it is changing, and you know this uh, occurred before. You know the the election of Barack Obama came with the the early projections that in 2042, the historic majority of the United States uh white americans would no longer be in the majority that there would actually be no majority and that that if there were one uh the projections would be that it would be uh people who are not white uh in, in our current definition and so there are these uh multiple streams of uh of potential disillusionment uh, arriving to a group of people who might be in some ways the least secure um, among people in the dominant caste. In other other words, the more you rely on what we now know to be artificial, arbitrary uh, centering and stature that comes from inherited ranking, the greater your investment might be in maintaining that hierarchy and the greater fear one might have at the potential uh, loss or waning of it.
1: Let me try an idea on you around this. So I was reading the book and thinking about something my colleague Matt Iglesias has cataloged that he calls the Great Awakening, which is the way that sort of white liberals, but this tends to break down in in, in polling, like educated whites have become much more racially liberal in recent years. Like my, like in, in, in some surveys, they're now more racially liberal than um, African-Americans or Hispanics in the Democratic Party. But downscale whites have been moving much more towards the Republican Party, the Republican Party becoming more outrightly white nativist. And as we come near that demographic tipping point, is it possible that um, caste is losing some of its power and that's imbuing class with yet more power? that like the the whites who can jump out are doing so and sort of it's like a like part of a class signifier is now actually to be more cosmopolitan more racially liberal and the downscale whites are getting left behind and are more are angrier about it turning to people like trump and that you're actually seeing in a slightly different way this interaction between class and caste, people want to be on top of the hierarchy. And when the numbers are changing on caste, such that that's not a stable hierarchy in the way it was 30 years ago, um, people are imbuing class with more and trying to find the signifiers that are going to separate them. You sometimes see this argument on the right, Michael Lind makes it, David French has made it, that there's this white culture war happening. But your book made me wonder if it's happening in part for this reason, that it's actually the demographic changes that are destabilizing caste and so, or at least racial caste. And so people, including white people, are looking for the hierarchy that they can be secure in.
0: I'm not aware of studies that would give that as a, as an animating explanation. I would say that caste has been the underlying infrastructure of this country before there was the United States of America. It's a 400-year-old infrastructure. And that throughout our history, We have found that there have been moments of ebbing and waning awareness, even, you know, shock and alarm over certain things that have happened. And then, um, adjustments made and then, uh, retrenchment. I mean, we, we had, uh, you know, we had an entire abolitionist movement, uh, of people who I would say felt the same level of outrage and a sense of, you know, connection to the plight of, of enslaved people and took that upon themselves and you know were influential in 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 the run up to the civil war there were, you know, people who after the Civil War uh put forth the uh the legislation. You know, we forget that we talk about the civil rights legislation of the 1960s. We don't think about the civil rights legislation of the 1860s and 70s. In other words, the 1960s was, you know, the second go round. It was civil rights 2.0. <laughs> so we we have a long history of things reaching a boiling point to such a degree that Open-minded people, you know, who have born to what I would call the dominant caste, awaken to uh, the injustices, the unfairness, the excesses, and tragedies around them, and they rise to action. And that's been necessary for us to get to where we are. But we also see that there there have been ebbs and flow, and that with with the advancements comes re, comes often backlash and then retrenchment. That has been the history of our country. And, um, this, this book was written with an eye not toward a current moment, but toward, you know, the long arc of our country's history. Um, and seeing the, the thread that runs through our history and the ways in which we tend to cycle through certain um, almost ex- expected uh, ebbs and flows because we have not really truly addressed what's underneath it. We've not really truly addressed the infrastructure and the ranking and the boundaries, the the messaging about the value accorded uh, different groups in our country. So I would say that this is part of a continuum. And it's, it's a hopeful continuum, but it is a continuum nonetheless. And it is, it is really, you know, from my perspective, having, you know, written this and, and also lived it, is that it, it's, it is, um, it's tragic that it, it takes, extreme moments extreme circumstances to rise to the level of of getting the attention of people who may not have to live with this every day we're great i'm grateful i mean all of us anyone would be grateful for the recognition of the circumstances of our country, the desire to know and to learn is absolutely critical. Um, But I think that we, you know, I I tend to take uh, the, the historic view, the long view of history, and to say that this is something that is a continuum. And we are at a certain point in the continuum. And where we go from here will depend a lot on how truly awakened people are right now and 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 what we collectively choose to do once we are awakened to what is our own history and what our, 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 current, our present is as well.
1: I think it's a good place to come to a close. So let me ask you the question we all used to end the show, which is, what are three books you've read that you would recommend to others?
0: I am coming from this, you know, immersion in this topic, and I have been so into it that I uh, would recommend and wish that people would read uh, about the originating voice of uh, anti-castism in the world, which would be the work of Bim Rao and Bedker, who was one of the uh, writers of the Indian Constitution. He was born an Untouchable, and he became a revered leader of the Untouchable Movement. Um, his name is Bim Rao and Bedker, and he wrote a book called The Annihilation of Caste. I would also recommend a book called Deep South, uh, written by Allison Davis and, um, Burley Gardner. Uh, they are two couples that went to, ventured into the Jim Crow South at great peril to themselves. They were anthropologists who were studying the Jim Crow South. A black couple and a white couple and a black couple had to live the, uh, the experience of being, uh, assigned to the subordinate cast, even though he would be one of the most, uh, Educated people he might ever meet in the small town where they were living, and and then I think I would recommend a book by Eric from the Heart of Man, in which he talks about the dangers of centrality of of the of a dominant group, the dangers that can that can accrue to the to to everyone in how we relate to one another. He was a German um, uh, psychotherapist who wrote extensively about the human heart and what you were saying before about the risks to the, the human heart when exposed to messaging. And and it's a very short book. And he was one of the, author, one of the authorities on, on this topic.
1: Isabel Wilkerson, your book is called Cast the Origin of Our Discontents. I recommend it to everyone. Thank you so much for taking all this time with me today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you to Isabel Wilkerson for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here, to Roger Karma for doing a ton of research on this one, Jeffrey Geld for producing and editing. Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.